Good morning, Davenport, Iowa. How you guys doing today? My name is Leonard Jones, and let me welcome you to the seventh and final episode of the Black Conscience Podcast. I hope you guys are staying safe and healthy during these times. To give you a little synopsis, the Black Conscience is a 30-minute podcast that features a discussion between me and an expert on a certain topic pertaining to black history or culture. This week, we'll be discussing redlining in the QC, and today I have me Reverend Dwight Ford, a man with many titles, but one of those titles you guys may know him by is as the founder and pastor of the Grace City Church right across the river in Moline. During these talks, I'll be asking Reverend Dwight boundary-pushing questions in order to reach a new level of understanding through conversation. The purpose of this podcast is to educate the St. Ambrose community on African-American history and bring light to the many tragedies African-Americans still deal with every day due to the oppression systems set up against us. This is in hopes of developing a conscious way of thinking while also informing the community on the tremendous amount of untold history. This is an opportunity for us to move forward through education, conversation, and communication. But enough of me talking, now have our guests introduce themselves. Well, thank you for having me, Leonard, and I'm glad to be here. And of course, let me celebrate the work that you and uh, the team has done to bring these subject matters uh, to the fore, to have a serious conversation, and to create a sense of community around dialogue. Thank you. Well, that'll go into my first question I have for you. So, for a person who could be ignorant to the terminology, what is redlining and how would you define redlining? Well, there is an extensive history in redlining, and it's a category that uh, perhaps needs to continue to be mined and developed and shared across uh, different platforms so that people can get a better understanding. What coming into out of the 1930s, Mm -hmm. uh, the Great Depression, uh, everybody was pushed on their heels. Uh, The economy had collapsed. And FDR um, came up with a kind of uh, a package or set of bills that were to strengthen the ability of Americans to get back on their feet, so to speak. And so there were processes and benefits that allowed people to take advantage of government support. And out of that, in 1934, uh, we started seeing the Homeowners Loan Corporation and the Federal Housing Association. And so what they wanted to do is, of course, give people a chance to purchase homes. And so they provided these uh, resources for home ownership. The challenge is is that America had not got over its racial uh, bias. It had not got through its, uh, and we still have not for that matter, Um, they had not overcome uh, the the uh, the weight of racism and how ingrained it was in in American culture, so they made these benefits available, but with racial bias. And so what they would do is take a look at a geographical swath of land, and they had color codes, then gave a grade. So if your grade was green. That meant maybe the business community, people that were entrepreneurial, hiring other folks, they gave the grade of A, meaning that you're going to get this loan. No, no challenges with you getting it. Then there was a blue 
right, that was next and said, yeah, they're sustainable, not as high as the green, but we're going to move these loans. Yellow, uh, meaning that you were on the decline, questionable, and you got a C grade. The highest level of risk was associated with red. Ergo, we get the language redlining. Mm-hmm. So they would essentially draw around this particular area with a red marker, red pen, and they gave the, the grade of D, meaning undesirable, high risk. Mm-hmm. Now, in that category, you can guess who was in that category. There were no blacks in the green level, no blacks in the blue but all of the black community happened to be in the red spaces, black and brown, but particularly mm-hmm. black in this case as we are having this conversation. So they were the undesirables. These were the individuals that could not receive the loans to essentially move to a different space, a different uh, uh, place in the community where they could take advantage of home ownership. So they were locked into these communities. And that's what segregation really is about. Now, you think about what segregation and particularly what redlining has done but you, you're still coming out of 244 years of chattel slavery some would go as high as uh, 250 and then you have a, essentially this 90 or it could go as high it depends on who's doing the math 100 years of Jim Crow, Jim Crow legalized discrimination mm-hmm. in the law itself you could treat people this way and then you have another 60, 50 to 60 years of separate but equal. And then you come to the last 35 years of trying to deal with these racist policies that have been in place uh, from the very beginning. Our first Civil Rights Act and is not 1964. It's 1866. Then we have to go back and try it again because we're not getting the, the lesson. And then we then out of the Civil Rights Act of uh, uh, 1964, we had to come at it and hit it one more time as we're pertaining to housing in 1968. And we're still dealing with the the effects, uh, the ramifications and the ugly residue of racism because those communities were not allowed. When we say uh, to move out and up, when we say segregation, we're not meaning just you're, you're kept from me to sit with you as a brother or sister. Not that black folk couldn't sit in class. This was segregation from resources. This was segregation from opportunity. So we have to tell the truth about segregation. It's not just simply, I can't have dinner with you or I have to go around to the back of the door. This is essentially challenging uh, our way of life and opportunity and expansiveness that we have a chance to breathe. They are able now to take your census tract, your zip code, and determine how long you'll live. Oh, wow. I never knew because, that. And that is, a, that is a direct result of racism and going back to these codes that were in place. And so when we start thinking about this whole thing of what redlining really does, it is not just I couldn't buy a home. Mm-hmm. But what does a home do? The first thing when blacks uh, won their freedom, I have to always remind people, black folks wasn't given freedom. We won our freedom. There was a whole lot of folk that gave their life. There was a whole lot of black folks out of enslavement that went and fought uh, in the Civil War. There was a whole lot of people through runaways and revolts and uh, plantation uh, trouble that they kept up that absolutely aided and worked with abolitionists and those of goodwill from the majority population to pull us off. We want our freedom. It wasn't given to us. Anything that's given can be taken away. Yes. Anything that you win, you have to continue fighting for. 
so the battle isn't over. So out of that, you, you come through. The first thing that blacks said that we would need uh, to make it out of enslavement was land. Yes. That's the first thing they asked for. That was the whole purchase deal of 40 acres and a mule. <laughs> Land. That was the greatest act of freedom. Give me land. It's what uh, those European uh, settlers came in, and when they came over, they were getting land, whether it was by grab or take or by murder or genocide, they were getting land. So we needed land to stand upon. And out of that land that we had, some of, of course, the history records show how much land we owned back in that time. We built our homes. We had that chance to to give land to our children or the wealth that's associated with it. We are essentially now in the Quad Cities as black folks, a landless people. When you have almost 75% of black folks in the Quad City renting, that's a landless people. Yes. And so you have to ask, how free are we? So I'll ask you this. Um, if you are to never experience redlining or be fortunate enough to be educated on it, how will one recognize redlining? Well, one, first of all, if you do a, a uh, drive through to your neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. I grew up in uh, Rock Island. I've lived in almost every city of the Quad Cities. Davenport, Bettendorf, Moline, East Moline. Over my, over my years, I'm 50 years old this year. So I had a chance to see the different swaths of land. Anybody that is a native of the Quad Cities can argue this point. Almost to a T, the same places that were economically distressed, the same empty lots, the same deteriorating buildings, the same neighborhoods that were going not forward but backward economically with advancement and opportunity are almost those same neighborhoods today. Redlining. I can guarantee if those areas are heavily black populated, you can go back and see where the opportunities and who was making loans and who was getting loans to advance their life. So would you classify redlining as a systematic as systematic and if so how it's definitely systemic without without question think of it this way if you in fact can't own Mm -hmm. just because you have black people living in a residential geographical area doesn't mean it's a black community yes community means that there is a commune of opportunity exchange of dollars skills all of that has to be happening if I in my head think of it as community and not just a place where one lives if you can't get the home loans and you stay in this area someone else is benefiting from your rent that generally do not live in that area so someone your dollars are going out but you stay in and if the dollars from the taxes from the home ownership are not generated guess who suffers the local public school district It is the school district that receives those taxes to build capacity. Now you have underfunded schools. Underfunded schools can be directly tied to uh, children not meeting grade. There are challenges. There are more more setback uh, related challenges that have to be addressed in areas where there's underfunded. 
reality where there's not enough resources, not enough teachers' aid. Kids are packed in high numbers in these classrooms without assistant teachers. And you start looking at the math and reading scores, there's a direct correlation, right? And now you have the schools are not going up, the grades are not going up, children generally do not go to college, so they stay. Now, everybody doesn't have to go to college, but their career opportunities, where are they going to get a job if nobody owns anything in their community? Because without a, without a home, you don't have leverage to send your children to school because you pull equity out. Not all of these kids from the majority community are getting scholarships. Their parents are using the wealth of the home and the equity to send their children to school or start their own biz home businesses or launch their own small business. Because that, that, that gives you another leverage tool. So now you're not starting businesses. Um, by and large, we know there is always exceptions to the rule. People are not taking advantage of trade schools or college or university opportunities because there's not enough equity built up in the system of their home ownership or their wealth building capacity. So all of that's impacted. So you got wealth that's impacted, you have education that's impacted, but you know what else? This is why systemic health is impacted. Most of these places that were redlined were downtown areas, urban sites, not, not exclusively, mm -hmm. but most. A lot of these residential areas were built up around factories so people could walk to work. It, that's how they generated or built the cities at that time. There was no commuting. You, you know, you may have gotten on a bus or something and went a little ways down in the 30s and the 40s in the industrial age. So you have all these realities now where asthma is up, lead is up, kids that have an underdevelopment now um, because of their exposure, high proximity. Now, not only health, now the whole criminal justice system is involved. Because you have all these black folks living in one area, and because that same racist mentality of a lot of black folks in one area means high risk. So now you have a state of over-policing, and under protection. Now, I drive through my communities all the time. I can barely make a right and a left without seeing a squad car somewhere. Maybe if you've had a different experience, you need to tell me. <laughs> but if you spend any time in a heavily black populated area that's deemed as low income, you're not going to have to look far for a police officer. No. Now, conversely, you go to another area that's... Uh, um, well-off and well-to-do, wealth has been established for generations. You're driving around these plush, plush neighborhoods and gated communities, and you see stuff laying all out in the yard, and ATVs, <laughs> boats, and doors open, and they can sleep, car doors never locked, and you barely can find a police officer. I mean, you almost got to go looking for them. Yes. So who's doing the real protecting? If you say this is an underserved area with low wealth, low, low income, and low means, you have all these people there to protect and the stuff that they have to protect. And then you go to the highest, wealthiest place in the, in the city, and you have fewer officers and more wealth and gadgets and toys and stuff everywhere. That tells me that police are not doing the protecting. They're protected by their credit score, 800 and plus.
They're, they're protected by their sense of ownership and opportunity. They're protected by their educational attainment. They're protected by their cell phone because their cell phone has their network in it. And if they lose the job they're in, they have people that are co-journeying with them at the same level or higher. And who do poor people generally have, particularly poor black people, in their cell phones? People in the same soup that they're in. So who are you going to call if you lose your job to say I'm back on the market? Can you float my resume? What I'm suggesting to you is that this whole thing of risk based on race has been a farce from the beginning. And that was the whole reason they said they don't need to be free. They wouldn't know what to do with it. When D.W. Griffith comes out with the whole um, birth of a nation, he has this sense that if they became free, they're going to uh, rape white women. They're going to steal. They're going to be uh, vagabonds. That they're going to be uh, malingerers. They're not going to want to work. All of it is fictional. It's myth-making. And it's dangerous. Yes. And that's why redlining has hurt uh, our communities in such a significant way because it's built on a lie. There were blacks that had, and I haven't even talked about redlining that is getting closer to the 2000s. And when you talked about the big housing uh, boom and the bust that happened in 20, um, 2010, somewhere around in there, so, uh, back up. I was in California in Sacramento pastoring out there. There wasn't a block that, I was, that was close to my church that didn't have houses up for foreclosure. And a lot of those were black people that got these subprime loans, even when they had credit scores to get better. And that was the whole Wells Fargo fiasco that they had to come. They didn't want to admit that that's what they did, but they settled because of the nefarious actions. And so when we take a look at where communities are today, if we're not looking at a historical record and how they got to where they are, then we're not doing ourselves a service. We're continuing that myth, that lie, and that, um, that current misunderstanding about who we are as a people. So you kind of spoke on it a little bit, and I want to go on. Please. So you, not being able to achieve home ownership cripples black families from being able to build wealth, wealth through equity, homes, and business, like you said. So you kind of spoke on it a little bit, too. So would you say acts like this could be considered intentional? And see, this is where people always want to, no, no one wants to be called a racist, right? I don't care what you say and what you do. You could be on the floor of the Senate. It doesn't matter. You could be in the House of Representatives. You could be a business owner. I, that wasn't racist. I just, I, that wasn't, no one wants to be that. So let me, let me cut across the field and say this. You do not need deliberate acts to have disparate impact. The system has been set. Any operator of equipment in manufacturing knows that you set it. And then you can walk away and keep feeding the system. The machine will do the work for you. Do I think it's racist? Absolutely. Whether or not the person that has their hand on this loan or not was intentionally trying to be racist, they're in a racist system, yeah. a system that has bias. And unless they recognize that and pay careful attention, then they don't necessarily need that idea of deliberate intent to have disparate impact. So if you're just looking for one single devil in the story, you're going to miss everything. Yes. 
That's what people start looking for, a horn and pitchforks on everybody. The system has been set up since this very beginning to ensure that black folks were landless. Black folks came up here. We, particularly that great black migration that Isabel Wilkerson talks about um, and the, the warmth of other sons. Many of them came up because of terror that you could not walk down the sidewalk without lifting up with, with, with lifting up your head to look a white man in the face. You would have to step off the sidewalk to step into the mud. If you were from Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, Arkansas, Louisiana, Texas, they were trying to get away from that. Being called everything but sir or ma'am. Yeah. Treated lower than a footprint having to walk home and make sure that you got on the side of the bushes in the, in the weeds if you didn't recognize the truck that drove by. So they went through a, a beer can out and bust you in the face. Or a bunch of folk that were drunk and wanted sport to pull your child in and do some unthinkable act to them. Yeah. I, and I would say just from... Um our previous conversation I had with you and knowing that um, you being from Mississippi yes. and I know um, I was talking it's crazy brother because I was talking to my grandmother my grandmother was born in Macon Mississippi oh, yes. around the border like Alabama and mm -hmm. so she was really like surrounded by land but she was born in 1914 and growing up um, she was sharecropping land yeah. from um, this man and she was just telling about all the things that basically how he would trick them tell them that yeah you're, you're gonna get this land eventually you're gonna get this land yeah. eventually and then um, unfortunately um, her parents passed away mm. and when her parents passed away everything went out the window and yeah. she wasn't nothing was guaranteed like it was said and everything like that and so well eventually she had to move up to Chicago yeah and because she, um, she had to stay with her sister her parents wasn't mm -hmm. around anymore but just that thing right there how basically they feed us all these lies and make us believe this this and that and make us think that we're actually gonna earn something but then switch it up at the end but then that also kind of brings me to um section 8 mm -hmm. how um I, me personally, I know a lot of people who um, have Section 8 and how people will give up their whole home just yeah. to basically get put somewhere else. The government, in a sense, push you because they're paying for it, but mm -hmm. don't realize how the home ownership you're giving up. See, if you lived in a predominantly um, historically black neighborhood, yeah, and that um, people don't know that if you live in a historically black neighborhood, that property taxes and things like that, if your neighborhood gets approved, you don't have to pay a lot of that. You mm -hmm. own but people don't know them. People don't know the register for things like that. So then they give up their historically valued home to the government. Now they can do whatever they want with it. Yeah. And so um, I ask you this question. Um, even though Redline specifically has been out loud, do you believe, and you kind of spoke on it already, do you believe there are still some victims of Redline here in the Quad Cities? I, I would definitely say yes. Uh, I would love to see a study that goes back to who were getting loans, particularly in the uh 40s, 50s, and 60s were uh, that the majority of the black population that is here came up from the South. Not exclusively. There have been black folks here uh, that came from other regions and, you know, three, four generations have been born here. But the major numbers of black people in the Quad Cities came up. I would love to see the numbers of home ownership and the loans that were going out. I do know this, that it's very easy for a person to have an advanced degree, a master's degree, um, 45 to 50 years old and be a first-time homebuyer. That should tell you something. That they're the first homebuyer in their family. That should tell you something. So if you have 
74 75% black rental and conversely our white counterparts are homeowners at that same level or a little bit more 76 78% somewhere depends on what numbers you look at and you say to yourself how can people be empowered and this isn't renter shaming but how can people be empowered if they rent <coughs> excuse me almost at 80% And do they rent because they don't want to own? Do they rent out of a lack of knowledge? Or are they renting because they never can or could get the loan to get out? And that may take us back to a couple of generations. So I want, I want to be fair with that. I have to ask the hard questions. You have these, these banks that have a letter of commitment from the law, from the government, uh, Community Reinvestment Act dollars that they have to reinvest in the communities wherein they take deposits. Where is that money going? If you're doing first-time home buyers programs for the most disadvantaged people, why are these numbers where they are? <laughs> why are these numbers where they are? If all these Community Reinvestment Act dollars are to help people get into home ownership and have opportunities, where is it at? Where are the numbers that continue to rise? If it's their credit scores, then who's working with their credit? You're, you're funded. You're getting resource. These organizations that get that money, we have to hold people accountable for this. Yes. We cannot, we cannot say we want an equitable, more diverse, and inclusive quad cities. And, excuse me, and look at those numbers and be satisfied. The house is on fire. And if we're not running around trying to get people to safety, if we're not if we're not talking about entrepreneurship in a way that comes out of these home ownership opportunities, then to turn around hire people in the neighborhood, people in your family, that's how other communities do it. The people they hire first are from their families, then their friends, from their community. Yes. If we had just a few to get out every year to begin with get into a home use the equity start the building blocks so we could have a, a black community not just black residents in a geographical area there has to be commerce and conscience and communion and opportunity if I'm going to call it a community yes. so I ask you this so do you believe um, and you, you already kind of touched on it already, but do you believe mortgage lending denying African American families severs their ability to achieve home and shit? So, yeah, I mean, you basically said it already. Hit it right on the <clears throat> well, I think it, I think it exploits mm -hmm. even more. So, what happens is that high concentrations of black people essentially become a colony where the loans for them to own inside or choose another place it's their right to live where they want. They're not afforded that. Then they're staying in a geographical area where they're renting. Most of the units that they're renting are not owned by them. So now everything goes out. So now you got the small businesses, the bodegas, the gas stations, um, mom and pop operations that are not owned as well mm -hmm. by people. In, they're in that community, but they're not owned by people of that community. Mm -hmm. So now you see the extraction and the exploitation. Everything is sucked out. And I always have to ask people when they say, well, 
you, you got to look at rooftops. Not enough home ownership to put the grocery store there. They're, that's why it's a food desert. And they look at the rooftops. It's interesting that when they put a pawn shop there, they're not looking at rooftops. When they put a pay, payday loan center there, they're not looking for rooftops. When they put these predatory lending companies that could charge up almost up to 300% interest and have 85% of their loans are revolving loans, only 15% of the loans that they do every year are new loans. Keeping the black data black community. So they're not looking at rooftops. How is it that they could come into those most de devastated, economically distressed communities that happen to be black, if we're keeping it real, and never go out of business? But the black business that, is going So on. they never go out of business. When's the last time you've seen a pawn shop shut down because of no <laughs> business in a black community? Um, I When's live the last time you've seen a liquor store? I, know, I live right next to a cute couple of pawn shops and liquor stores. They, they've been there my whole life. Oh, okay, that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> And they, they, it's the continual extraction. So the little bit of disposable income that, remember, the, the model that we should all employ is that you, you try to make more, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you spend less, and you invest the difference, right? When you're paying $1,200 for rent, and you could own, so everything that you're doing is to rent that you don't build equity in, then you can't invest the difference. So I'll ask you this. Do you believe that that plays into, you kind of spoke on how it plays into the educational system too, yeah. but do you believe that that's, um, the lack of financial literacy to the African-American community also plays a part? Like I know a lot of people don't know about um, rent to own. Yes. Like that it's a, it's a if you work it out, there's a possibility to them rent to own. It's self-explanatory yeah. in its name. So do you believe that us not having those resources and knowledge about it plays a part into that too? Without question. And, and again, uh, uh, our people are destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. Mm -hmm. And so ignorance is not an, an insult on a person's personhood. It is essentially to say without knowledge, that's all. Mm -hmm. So without knowledge, you won't have the experiences. And without, with, with generational lack of experiences and knowledge, that can't be passed down. Mm -hmm. So you don't know what to do. So it's your, your first generation college student. You don't know about applying for this. You don't know about how do you get, uh, you don't even know about ACT or SAT. Mm -hmm. You don't know any of that because no one in your family has gone that far. Yes. So you have to learn, and then once we learn, we're able to come back, and that's where the onus of responsibility is upon us. Uh, and we have to be mindful of that, not only to teach us about the good things, but also to stay away from the bad things. Malcolm X, you talked about people take, giving up their land and their ownership to take something that is given. Malcolm X would always say that everyone that tosses worms to the fish is not a friend of the fish. Yes. And the fish that generally take him for a friend <laughs> end up in the frying pan. See, what happens is that there are hooks on this th in these things that get people hooked in, and then the exploitation continues for generations. When black folks came up uh, out of Mississippi, Arkansas, and Tennessee, they got into Chicago, uh, uh, South Side and North uh, uh, West Side. They populated heavily into these spaces. They moved into renter agreements, contract buying. Contract buying uh, is that they had these homes that this person as a middleman purchased for $17,000 from somebody else, speculators that drove the traffic out, said black folks are coming, bought it low, said you got to get out now or you're not going to get anything. Then they held it. They sold it. They put it on contract for $25,000 for black people. So now black people coming in paying two times the amount for rent than what white people were paying to own. Right? So now you have this exploitation that's happening. And contract said that you don't get any equity. You make a $1,000 down payment. You don't get any equity. And if you miss one payment, after 15 years of this contract, you lost every payment, your down payment, and everything that you had. 
you essentially are put out. There was no guarantee to anything. And then they would turn around and put your stuff out. And because the need was so great, people coming up out of Jim and Jane Crow terror, because that's what it was, trying to find opportunity and a place to get their feet under them, they would take advantage of the next family. They would split these homes up, and a home that was meant for one family would have five in it. You seen Raisin in the Sun? Yes. All right. Raisin in the Sun. Thank you. Thank you. So that whole system that was set up there, they're living in a two-bedroom apartment, right? And they're sharing a bathroom. And they're trying to find a way to get out. And there's these covenants there, white covenants. You can't, you can't purchase any. These are, this is the history that America has to come to grips with. Yes. What America loves to do is say, this is the home of the free and the brave. Anything is possible here in America. And that may be true for some. America loves a window, but it hates a mirror. And so we need to stop in the mirror to see how we got here and how this has impacted a group of people, undeniably, based upon race and race alone. So that kind of you that kind of made me think about it because I've um I've been looking at a lot of different other countries' histories and what they've been through and things like that, and then I've come to realize like out of all the countries, we're our, we're one of the only countries who've um refused to accept our past, refused to acknowledge it. Yeah, I think that's a big thing. We don't want it. Like you said, look ourselves in the mirror. Yeah. All right, we did this. We need to accept that we did this. But how do we move forward? How do we move forward the right way, yeah. and not and not in a misdued way, um, or some type of sneaky way, anything yeah, like that? Just yeah. the right way, do things the way they're supposed. To, not in a sense, sneaky things and policies, yeah. wording, using tricky wording so people don't understand the mm-hmm. context and or the meaning behind actual things, but actual genuine, true policies and. Um, change yeah yeah and and we've had glimpses of that in the past it just never has lasted so out of enslavement uh, the 40 acres in in the mule was supposed to hit it was signed and then uh, President Lincoln is assassinated and then his uh, uh, his replacement comes in and of course pulls the, the rug out underneath everybody's feet and blacks that did get land were evicted and put back out oh wow just that fast things could change because it was never systemized. It was never systemic. The redress is based always on one person. If that person isn't in office, then we have nothing. But racism is systemic. It doesn't need a person at the helm. It's the system. And so we've had glimpses of that. I suggest, what, since we're in this racial reckoning, we must learn all we can, as black folks particularly, about our history, but also how we move forward. We need to know what to move toward and what to stay away from. Um, that racial reckoning is helping white people understand that blacks are not lazy and shiftless because that's the continuation of the lie. Yeah. We're not risk, uh, risky investments. That's why banks won't come into the neighborhood. That's exactly right. So we, we need to get rid of that, but the only way you can do that is have this serious racial reckoning that's a look in the mirror. And then we need to move to reconstruction. And we've had Reconstruction before, 12 years out of enslavement to, from that 1865 up to 1877. Yeah. Then it, again, white backlash <laughs> came and we back in another direction. And then the, the next one, and we, but out of that Reconstruction, we had the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. Mm-hmm. Policy change, that's what you're talking about. And then we had the second wave of uh, racial reckoning and then redress that happened in that same sense. Um, which happened with the Civil Rights Act of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65, and then the uh, Fair Housing Act of 68. And I think we're getting close to that now. With this racial reckoning, we can move toward uh, another set of reconstruction. What policies will come out of this? 
because Dr. King's stuff didn't move until he was killed, assassinated. He was in Chicago, 1550 South Hamlin Street, third floor, third floor uh, tenant building, living in waste and garbage and roaches and rats. He stayed there for almost an entire year on the west side of Chicago. Oh, I never knew that. Yeah, lived there almost. Brought his family, not just him. Brought his wife and children there. Lived and worked with the Chicago Freedom Movement. So it's that space there of getting in it and understanding. He pleaded and pressed and pushed with the Chicago Freedom Movement to get a Fair Housing Act or a Housing Act to go into place because of all of the redlining, all of the... Um, the shenanigans that they were pulling and all of the uh, the uh, foolery that they were pulling on black folks and in that sense it never happened until he was assassinated six days really he was assassinated on the 4th uh, April 4th 1968 by April 10th they put a pen to paper I hope it doesn't take that much more bloodshed to get the next set of uh of redress and possibilities. And if we do that, if we come through racial reconciliation, if we come to legal redress and rec reconstruction, then we can really get to racial reconciliation where everybody really wants to be. I shouldn't say everybody, <laughs> but enough of us really want this country to heal. I definitely agree. So um, I'll ask you, for those who don't know what gentrification is, yeah. do you believe gentrification... Um, do you believe gentrification plays a role hand-in-hand -hand with redlining in some aspects? Well, by the time you can't move up and out and you extract all the resources out of a community, everything is falling apart. Everything, the value thereof is going down. The homes that are there have depleted in value. Then a group of people, the city finally says, Lay, we want to redevelop this community. And all of a sudden, they're selling properties for pennies on the dollar, then giving them tax benefits to come back in and assisting policies to help them redevelop the community. And what they do is buy low, turn around and sell for high, bring a new population that's not from that community in, which there's room for people to come in. The problem is, is that the people that were there can no longer afford the places for purchase. They can no longer afford the places for rent. Uh, the businesses that, that are there, now they they have a $7 a smoothie shop uh, right around the corner when that used to be, you know, owned by a person in the community that sold uh, soda pops or and uh, penny candy. So I actually, do you believe, and I know um, this is one way the game in the sense is play. I know that um, when you don't play, um, play, uh, pay your property taxes if yeah. someone comes up under you they can buy your property tax then you, they can tell you all right you have 30 days to yeah. get off my so do you believe that also played into, um a part in it too well definitely in the south and and i would dare say in in the north as well but in the south people were terrorized so they left when they had to leave yeah. uh, there were no opportunities so they were up here living with cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents and the house back in the south that had you know 25 acres of land attached to mm -hmm. it the property taxes didn't get paid, so it was taken from them. Their, their historical record of land being taken, property being taken, even if they owe back taxes or not, it was land grab. It was taken. That's what happens when people are terrorized. Now, in the North, uh, some of that has happened because, again, because of a lack of knowledge, uh, we miss out on opportunities to, to possess and keep the land. And for, for black people that were taking off of the land, not leaving voluntarily. I'm not talking about the immigrant uh, and those that came here of their own decision. I'm talking about people that were snatched off land to come to a land and not be able to have some land to get their feet under them so they can make a stand, take care of their families and themselves and pass that on as well. It's probably the highest robbery that we can speak of.
So. Again, so we're ready to be okay, okay we're good to go okay, okay sorry all right well um that goes to my last question i have for you so if there's a way to combat redlining how will one start to approach that situation one i i would say and i'm and i'm very serious with this mm -hmm. we need a history lesson um the very fact that we can have a conversation about how do we get here is important to determine how do we leave from here so many people want to start where the marker says you are here, which is important because you need to know where you are, you need to locate yourself. But as a people group, we need to know how did we get here? When coming out of enslavement, blacks were purchasing land at record levels. Then you put on top of that terror, legalized racism, Practices, codes, and behaviors from systems operated with people with conscious or unconscious commitments have led us to this place. Now we need to know where to step off and to find a good, sure place for our next foot. Uh, I, would I would suggest having not only the history lesson, but also gathering what resources we have at our disposal. I've already intimated that if the highest levels of predatory business can come into a community that is slated to be high risk, low wage, low wealth, and low income, and not go out of business, then we have something. The money's there. We have something. We just need there. to make those dollars march to a certain drumbeat. Yes. And that means that we have to have conversation. We have to look for people that are up and ready to purchase homes. And I just think locally we need a rigorous uh, home ownership campaign. Everything from education about such um, services to repair damage, whether out of ignorance or out of systemic uh, injury, and then uh, a sense of taking first steps and acknowledging and affirming when people purchase homes. Um, you always affirm what you want to see more of. Home ownership must become important to black people, must become important to white folks and any other people groups that are here. What we talk about becomes important. You wonder why kids want to become a basketball player or football player or a celebrity or dancer or rapper? Because after they perform or while they perform, they receive applause. What do you think that does to the psyche? <laughs> that I'm out here and I'm shooting a and every time I shoot that basket ball into that that basket, somebody claps. They love it. Yeah. So now I want to do more of it because I I always want to fit in. I want to be loved. I want to be part of community. So part of building community is saying we need land, we need property, and we need to celebrate that when yes. people purchase. When we open up businesses, we need to cut the ribbons. We need to talk and share about it when we are able to get new set of resources or get a new set of educational understandings, we need to celebrate it. Yeah. What happens with that is that it takes so much time to get it that the interest wanes and people are tired and exhausted and we don't choose to celebrate it as much. But we need to, banks need to celebrate it. They need to put it on their website, take a picture of these folks. That's how you change the mindset so that the culture and the modes, communication and behaviors will follow. 
but you have to get it into the atmosphere and then the rest of us will follow into it. So uh, that's, that's the three things that I would suggest that we need a strong history lesson. We need to essentially see what we have at our disposal. We all have something. We can all do something, and we all should start where we are. And then, essentially, we need to celebrate what we want to see more of, affirm it, and figure out how to start it in, a, in, in an early age with children so that they are groomed into it. It's like when you want your child to go to college, you don't ask if you're going to go. <laughs> you say, what, what college are you going to attend? What, what university are you going to attend? So you, you start shaping the mind by asking certain set of questions. Letting them think the answer for themselves. Yeah. Letting them what school, themselves. not if, what school do you plan on attending? What would be your degree? And people like that, well, I didn't even where think about it. Where would you choose to purchase your first home? Not where you want to live. Where would you choose to purchase it? Yeah. What city do you want to purchase your first home? And like you said, I don't think those questions are asked to African American kids are like, what do you want to do? Yeah. Not not what are you forced to do? Not what we what do you want to do? How do you feel? Yeah. So I definitely agree with that too. And then you kinda um you spoke on a little bit about keeping like that black dollar in the black community and it Absolutely. kinda makes me um think about Chinatown, Chicago, how I learned how the um the Chinese dollar in that neighborhood doesn't leave the community for thirty days. Yeah. It just circulates for there, there are some estimates that on a national sense that our dollar leaves between four and six hours. Yes. So when you can't reinvest, the community that I grew up in uh was a composite of black folks, white Jewish community mm -hmm. and Belgium. Oh, wow. I was in all in that community and blacks had some ownership in that. There were businesses that were owned. When you talk to those that are 65, 75, 80, they'll tell you, black folks that grew up on the west side of, uh, of, um, of Rock Island mm -hmm. didn't even go downtown for hardly anything. They circulated their dollars. And we had, we had three grocery stores in a smaller geographical area. Now then we can find one. So we're essentially in a food desert, but we used to have three had meat markets that you could walk in and uh, tell them, put it on my tab. Uh, the, my, my dad, my mom said they'll pay you at the end of the week, you know. Th that, that was that community. Yes. And now the business is all gone and it's been all replaced. And I can say this because I'm in the industry itself. Nonprofits. You, you can't rebuild community on the backs, soul backs of nonprofits. Mm -hmm. And until we get a mixture of public-private partnerships um, and the whole urban renewal thing turned out to be black folk removal. And that's a history of that. It is just as plain as day. If anybody wants to know, they can go to check it out for themselves. This isn't hyperbole. This isn't stretching. They read Richard Rothstein's book, who has yet to be challenged on any information that he has produced in The Color of Law. You read Cast by Isabella Wilkinson. You read all these books, you would see and listen and, and, and have serious conversation. You would see that black folks just didn't simply put themselves in this situation. Now, it's our responsibility to get out of it. But we wasn't put in it. Yeah, but we just didn't walk into this uh, on our own. There were codes, practices, policies based upon race and race alone that has injured uh, and insulted the humanity of black folks for for decades. And I would dare say centuries if we're going all the way back. <laughs> yes, definitely right. Well, 
Once again, I'd like to thank you, Reverend Ford, for joining the podcast today and having this discussion with me. Um, it truly means a lot. And with these continuous conversations, we are taking the small steps to combat ignorance and hate with positivity and education. We are also beginning the development of conscious thinking through diversity and education that could one day help us understand the philosophy behind people's racial biased way of thinking. I would like to thank everyone who made this possible with a special thanks to St. Ambrose 88.5, 106.1 FM KALA radio station, the St. Ambrose Coke John Foundation, and St. Ambrose Cabinet and Administration. I would like to also give one more special shout out to St. Ambrose Black Student Union, whose last meeting of semester will be held this Wednesday tomorrow at 7.15 via WebEx. I'd like, to, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the last episode of the Black Conscience Podcast, even though with this been a limited series i believe a lot of good conversation and knowledge came from this i hope you continue to stay safe and healthy and i hope you have a good end of the semester go bees